So in the early 20th century, there was a man named Jan, Polish man, uh, who came from a relatively modest background, had aspirations to do great things, had aspirations to become an accountant, uh, was encouraged by his family to do so, went off to study accountancy, but uh, the family business was that of being a tailor. So his dad was a tailor. And so uh, he left his studies also due to a, a, an illness in the stomach, a chronic illness, and decided to come home and work in the family business as a tailor and then eventually take care of his sick mom. Uh, he was definitely a, a smart man, this Jan, and uh, with a profound faith, a profound love for the rosary, and he used to go to Mass on a regular basis uh, in the mornings. So he'd get up early, he'd pray, make his way to church, go to Mass, pray on the way home, take care of his mom, and then spend his day working in the, what's it called in English? Tailor shop. Tailor shop. Seamstresses, seamster, tailors, tailors. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, take care, working there all day. That was his. That was his job. Now look from the outside, you, you look at his life and say that's average, <laughs> maybe unfulfilling. Uh, nothing, 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 nothing too special there. On one occasion, this Jan heard a sermon from a Salesian priest, and a Salesian priest said something that he had never actually heard before, which is that it's not hard to become a saint. It's not hard to become a saint. And Jan had always thought that <clears throat> sanctity is a million miles away. Sanctity is reserved for the top half percent of the population, uh, or even the top half percent of, of holy people. Like it, was just, it seemed like something so distant, so remote from our reality that it didn't seem possible. Whereas this solution said, but sanctity, sanctity is, is possible for us all. We sanctify our day. You don't have to die a martyr, but you, you can sanctify your day and sanctify your work. And this really, really struck him. So uh, it was a, a relieving, a, a joyful experience for him to understand that, that sanctity was something that he could actually do, something that he could live. So he got into the writings <coughs> of St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross and just was fascinated by the depth of, of their writings and became uh, quite well-versed in them and uh, became part of a, a rosary group with the Salesians, <clears throat> which then he was asked to head up. So when the Salesians, for some reason, they, they, they decided to delegate this, this job to Jan. Jan Ternovsky was his surname. And uh, Jan said, okay, he'll take it over. So he was a kind of intense kind of a character. But there were numerous young men in this little rosary group that he had. And when they would come, he would speak to them about the power of the rosary and about... Carmelite spirituality. One of the young men that came was a guy named Carol. You can see where this is going, I think. Okay, Carol. So Carol was a young man, exceptionally smart, who thought initially that Jan was very, very intense, kind of found him almost a bit, uh, <clears throat> yeah, too, too intense, too intense altogether. But there was something fascinating about him. So when he would speak, he would speak about the rosary. And there was, I'd say, a depth and a wisdom in him, which just fascinated Carol's mind, Carol's theological mind. <clears throat> a couple of years later, and I'm reading this, this quotation here now, from a priest, uh, a Slovak priest, um, sorry, a Polish priest. I'm, I'm going to hurt any Polish ears out there now if I mispronounce this name, but I think it's more or less uh, Mikieslaw. Malinsky, 
and he said, Jan's influence on Carol was gigantic. I can safely say that if it wasn't for him, neither Carol, Wojtyła, or I would have become priests. This man <coughs> was key, a key inspiration <coughs> in Carol Wojtyła becoming a priest, who then went on to become Archbishop of Krakow, who then went on to become a cardinal, who then went on to become John Paul II. But this, this man, this tailor, like the, 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 the simple things, the, the influence of this man, like the, remember we were talking, we, we've mentioned a couple of times, how at the end of time we'll have the final judgment where we'll see the ultimate consequences of all of our actions. And you think of like tracing all this back to Jan Tiranowski, the little tailor, going to Mass on a daily basis, praying his rosary, love for Car Carmelite spirituality, that affects John Paul II, who goes on to be Pope, who goes on to affect the lives of probably billions of people. Trace that back to Jan Tiranowski. Isn't that incredible? If when you think about it, like, you know, just the, the power of influence that we, we have without even realizing it. Now, Jan, um, great guy, great guy, uh, but died relatively young, developed uh, TB, and after the war, so in 47, he died, but he did get to see Carol ordained. Uh, but died then, so had no idea what Carol would become. So, John Paul II. John Paul II um, became Pope in 78, and as I said earlier, uh, such a crazy time uh, in the church, <clears throat> which we're not fully out of yet. There's still a lot of confusion as to the way forward. But in his time, so after the Second Vatican Council, uh, people expected certain things out of the council, which the council didn't necessarily say, and then people put into the mouth of the council certain things which the council didn't say. So after the council, uh, they were expecting the church to change its teachings on all sorts, on contraception and divorce and all sorts of things, which didn't happen, thank thankfully. Humanae Vitae uh, clarified and reiterated the church's position on these things, much to the pain of, of Paul VI, who had to suffer the, the, the brunt of the consequences after that. But be, because of that, many priests and religious and laity started leaving the church. So there was an exodus uh, from, of, of priests from the church afterwards. So like, things were beginning to very, very quickly fall apart. This is in the, like, the so, mid-70s, uh, 78, when he's ordained. So like, we, we've, had, we've, had the, we've had issues, we've had, the, 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 we've had problems in the church for, for a number, quite a number of decades now that haven't really been resolved. But anyway, we won't get lost in that. So Carol comes in, and he was a very different kind of pope in that uh, he was so, he was, he was exceptionally smart. If you read any of the writings of John Paul II, you go, that's amazing. I've no idea what it means. It's, it's, like, it's tough. It's, it, can be, it can be difficult to get your head around because <clears throat> he mixes philosophy and theology and poetry. It's all in there together. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's wonderful, but not, not exactly simple. Uh, but also, like he did, uh, his, his housekeeper would say that John Paul II, Saint, well, now St. John Paul II, uh, would not wear new clothes. So if you got him a new, a new T-shirt, he'd say, no, I don't want it. Where's my old one? And the old one would be, you know, all stained. They didn't have Daz back in the day. Uh, so to be kind of somewhat bordering on yellow or you know, a slightly more yellow tinge, a creamy, creamy tinge, ivory girls would probably call it. Um, 
so you know, so what they'd have to do is she'd have to go out, she'd have to buy new T-shirts, and then get some dirt, right? Rough them up a bit, and then wash them five or six times until they were a bit scruffy, and then put them into his wardrobe, and he wouldn't even notice. <laughs> so that, that was how that, that was. They had, to, they had to sneak new clothes. In. Same, same with, with, his, with his, you know, with his shoes and all those kind of things. He just didn't care about these things at all, but he cared about people. And he had a phenomenal memory for people and for people's names. He could meet you once and know you. Like, it, uh, there's a story told, I should have researched this now, because it's, uh, it's just coming back to my memory now, of um, an American seminarian. <clears throat> so he was, he was training over in Rome, uh, and he went to visit the, the, the church of uh, like Chiesa del Gesù, and um, so this is the church where the, the Sacred Heart, the picture of the Sacred Heart is kept, but okay, we won't get lost in details. So he, he was visiting this church, and on the way out, he met a archbishop, okay, and he introduced him, and the archbishop said, oh, good day to you, sir, where, where, I can see you're a seminarian, what, where are you from? And he said, I'm from America, what diocese? Very good, okay. Well, <clears throat> and then he gave him his name, and that was fine, okay. Said seminarian went off, went on through life to become a bishop, and then was called, obviously, to Rome for the ad limina visits, which happen periodically, which is when the, when the bishops meet uh, the Pope, <coughs> bishops of a country meet the Pope just to see how things are going, and in case anything needs to be communicated, they can do so directly with the Pope. And uh, John Paul II then, during this meeting with the American bishops, looks at this archbishop and says, I know you. And he says, um, I, you, know, you don't want to correct the Pope-like, but uh, I, uh, I, I, I don't believe you do, actually. I said, oh, I know, we have met, we have met. Uh, and he says, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, we haven't. And then it was later on then uh, during the limit, I said, ah, La Chiesa del Gesù, you are a seminarian. No, ding, that archbishop I met, that was you, that was him. Uh, he, he, he remembered. There was a, a, another situation where Sorry, with John Paul II, there are so many stories. I, I, I have to be careful now to not, to, not, to not get lost in detail. Okay, John Paul II, right, is simply, he was very, very different. All, another thing that he did as Pope very early on was he spoke against the Mafia and the Camorra, as they're called down in, in, in Naples. Uh, and he said, like, you know, they, just because they have this facade of holiness, this facade of religiosity, if they're not doing works that are coherent with their faith, then their faith is nothing. What happened? car bomb in front of John Lattern blew the windows and blew up a number of cars around and bent all sorts of stuff. He didn't care. <laughs> then he went to apostolic visitations. And we have to keep in mind, uh, this didn't happen. Like, po like uh, Pope Pius XII and that, I'm not sure if Pope Pius XII ever left the Vatican. John XXIII, I believe, started to. Um, Paul VI, I think, did. But John Paul II blew this thing out of the water. He started to visit everywhere, but also places where he may not have been welcome. When he went to Cuba, for example, phenomenal, as a young, a young pope, and there were crowds there, and the communists had told him, boo him. So there he is. I mean, you're pope, you arrive, and you're trying to give a, an address and uh, probably a mass. 
and the crowd are booing. And he was, you know, he had to get down closer to the mic and try and silence the crowd and, 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 and speak about the love of God to them. But they, you know, so what I'm saying is he wasn't always picking the easy gigs. Uh, he was a shepherd who went out to, to find the lost. Incredible. Such a, such, such a heart. Such a heart for people. When we think about his, his own life, I think we, we begin to understand where that heart came from. <coughs> he lost his mom at the age of nine. He lost his brother, who was a doctor and uh, caught fe- scarlet fever from one of his patients and died. And then he lost his dad. Just before he lost his dad, the Nazis had invaded Poland, annexed the country, killing priests. People were disappearing to concentration camps. <clears throat> a, time of, a horrific time for the church and for, for the Polish in general. After the war, Nazis left and they were replaced with communists. Out of the frying pan into the fire like. So now the church is still being watched and being observed and being repressed and all sorts of things. Like, horrific situation. In this context then of of Nazi occupation, he discovers his vocation and, and goes to a clandestine seminary in Krakow. Uh, then he's, he's ordained, but they didn't think he was a danger, right? Because he was, a, as a young priest, he would go kayaking with students. So obviously he's no threat. Because, you know, priests don't do that. Um, so they didn't see him as any threat at all. But when he was as a lecturer in the university, in uh, Jagiellonian University, uh, he was loved. He was loved, and he was, ex- again, ex- exceptionally smart. So he lectured in, in ethics. And they loved him. And they followed him. So the young people that, that, that he worked with, like, he was, he was a, a wonderful advisor also to couples, to married couples. So, again, it was, it was, it was a different kind of priest. The, the, the communists bugged his confessional right, in case uh, he was using it as, as a cover for, as a spy, you know, to, to get information, give information, spread information, whatever it was. And the communists would listen to his confessions and just say, it's absolutely incredible, I don't know how this man does it, hour after hour after hour after hour of people coming in and just unloading all that negativity, all that sin and all that loss and all that pain and he would remain so positive and so affirming and so hope-filled and telling people to you really call on the Lord, live from the Lord, contemplate his face. And, you know, so they, they didn't understand what he was or the influence that he had. Then as a, as a pope, then he brings all of that with him. He brings that, that lived experience of pain, of loss, and of mercy. He, all this life experience has now formed him. So when he's speaking, it's not just that he's smart and he knows how to stick words together, but he has lived uh, a life where he said, he saw in his dad, that he, my dad has suffered so many blows that life had inflicted upon him. This had a such broken his heart, but revealed within the heart an incredible capacity for love. So he had seen something of that in, 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 in his own life and brought that into into his papacy. So like, he, he cared. He loved people. And then because of this somewhat unpredictable nature, some didn't like him. And there was an assassination attempt in, on the 13th of May, 1981, where uh, Ali Acha, in the crowd in St. Peter's, shot him twice. One bullet grazed off his finger, one went in, under, in, in his abdomen, and he was rushed immediately to the Jameli Clinic, 
And the surgeon said, there's something very, very strange here. The bullet didn't travel in a straight line, which they do because they're going so fast they can't take corners. He said, the bullet didn't travel in a straight line. The bullet went around the major organs because if you get shot in the liver, you'll, you'll bleed out very quickly. Uh, so if you get shot under the abdomen, you just you, you, you bleed. Let's not go into the details. Some people are very queasy here. Um, but he got, where he got shot, the bullet was guided around the major organs and out the back. So he said, one hand pulled the trigger. John Paul II himself said of the assassination attempt, one hand pulled the trigger, and the other, another hand guided the bullet. The 13th of May, 81. He believed that it was through Our Lady's intercession <clears throat> that his life was spared. After which he read the, the Secrets of Fatima, and okay, so he was again just such 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 a wonderful pope and a wonderful pope for young people. Uh, he set up the World Youth Days, which drew larger crowds than One Direction, Garth Brooks, or who else he listened to? I don't know. One of your Fandangle bands, one of your. Alia Grande, Ariana Grande, there we go. Uh, bigger crowds than all of them put together. You know, just phenomenal crowds for a pope, because people loved him. When I was, I went to Rome as a seminary in 2000. So this was towards the end of his papacy. At that point, he had been quite weakened by uh, his illness. <coughs> so. Uh, his Parkinson's had, had, had very much uh, hampered his speech, so it was, it was quite difficult to understand him. So I remember trying to listen to his, his Italian. I was only learning Italian at the time as well, thinking, I have no idea what he's saying. But there's something very special about him. You could see him, like he, he'd come out of St. Peter's, and you'd be way down the back, and you'd see this little white figure come out, and somehow, you know, your heart would be touched. There's something, there's something just powerful even about the presence of the man. And then when he came to the window and he'd give his blessings and he'd just be, he'd just be shuffling over and the head would be hanging and, uh, he's, and he'd be kind of just gargling something. And he'd be like, I, I, I have no idea what you're saying, but what an example. What an example. That's the words. I mean, look, I mean, at the end of the day, you can get someone really smart to write your speeches for you. It's not hard when you're at that level. But to show your weakness to the world... So you're the leader of the church and you come out and you can't stand straight, you can't speak properly and you may even drool on yourself. What an example to all those who are sick that your life is still worth living. You know, like that it's just, he, he, he knew how to just to, to be so given over to Christ. He loved the Eucharist. He loved, it was said that um, when he, was, he visited the States, and uh, his, the organizers of his entourage uh, knew that if he saw where the chapel was, he'd go in. And if he went in, they'd be late. So, so they said to the, I think there was a, semi, a seminary they were passing through, close all the doors for that chapel, you know what I mean? So they're walking along the corridor, walking along the corridor, and then he just looks over, sees the door, looks at the organizer of his entourage and goes, and in he goes. <laughs> and then, yep, did spend some time there. Like, where did he get all this energy for? 
14 encyclicals, 13 apostolic exhortations, 11 apostolic constitutions, 42 apostolic letters, and canonized, hold on now, here we go, uh, 469 saints and uh, 1,310 blesseds. Like, no one had ever done anything close to that before him. Where did he get all this energy? I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. So we ask the prayers and intercession of St. John Paul II today, a man who loved the Lord, a man who loved the youth, a man who loved Our Lady, to renew our faith. And in this time of um, discussion of <coughs> synodality and the, the, synod, the ongoing synod now, <coughs> we ask it to be also guided by, by the spirit of John Paul II, a man who, yes, was open to dialogue with the world and at the same time a man who knew what the principles were. You don't change the principles. You can change how they're communicated or presented, but you don't change the teachings. Synodality does not mean everyone gets together and let's decide what we believe. It's everyone gets together and let's decide how we present what we believe. We do not change the teachings. The church is not democratic. And the Pope, even the Pope, cannot necessarily change any teaching he wants. Why? Because they're given to us by God. And we do not go messing around with what God has given us. It's really simple. We keep those principles simple, and then we start working on what we can actually change and what we can actually do and what we can actually improve. Otherwise, we start messing with the foundations, and then you start playing with foundations, the whole thing comes down. John Paul II knew that, and he knew, so he knew how to, how to keep the, the principles <clears throat> of the faith intact, but present them in such a way that they were attractive and likable. And so he drew so many young people to himself in that way. So we ask the good Lord, through his prayers and intercession, to bless us, bless our church, and bless the renewal of the church that he loved so much, the church that he bled for, the church that he ultimately died for. Amen. So dear brothers and sisters, thank you so much for joining us for uh, this homily via YouTube, via our live stream, or via the various podcasts. Uh, thank you so much for, for being part of our extended family, uh, wherever you may be. Uh, if these have helped you in some way, if they have they've blessed you, if they've helped you uh, in your faith in some way, in order to uh, facilitate our mission and, and, and encourage our mission, allow our mission to continue, uh, you might consider uh, maybe donating towards a Holy Family Mission, towards our formation of our young people here in uh, a place near Clonmel uh, in County Tipperary in, in Ireland. So if you wish, you can do so through our website, holyfamilymission.ie, and there's a donate tab there, and we greatly appreciate any help that you can give us. Obviously, we'd be delighted for your prayers as well. Please do pray for us. Uh, this is not just <coughs> a battle against flesh and blood but also obviously we're engaged in a whole spiritual battle here as well so we need your help uh, on the spiritual front as well as on the material front in order to to allow our mission to continue so thank you so much for your for your generosity and for your support and be assured of our prayers especially on wednesday when we offer our mass and our prayers for all of our friends and benefactors so god bless you and we'll hopefully see you or hear you uh, on a future podcast or homily god bless <laughs>